0: Thank you and welcome to everyone taking the time to listen to this presentation on a topic that is very relevant today. It's a topic of great interest not only to concerned citizens but also to primary care providers. Today we'll be discussing the subject of suicidality within the veteran population in this country. At first we'll be looking at the characteristics of the veteran population that place them at risk for suicide And later, we will take a look at suicide screening practices. And while exploring these areas, we'll emphasize new research findings that primary care providers should be aware of. Our course objectives today are to understand the high-risk status of the veteran population in terms of suicide risk, to understand the challenges encountered by veterans when seeking access to mental health professionals, as well as treatment and to learn about the theoretical perspectives of suicide, understand the signs of impending suicide, learn about the importance of suicide screening in primary care settings, and finally, we'll learn about screening tools and their administration. So why is this topic relevant today? After approximately 12 years of war, an estimated 2 million soldiers have returned home and are living among us. As a global leader and principal actor on the international stage, the U.S. has engaged in military occupation of foreign countries and combat for decades. Many have watched loved ones get deployed, wondering whether their goodbye was possibly the last encounter they would ever have with them. In the case of Iraq and Afghanistan wars alone, over 2.2 million troops were sent into battle. After having completed their tour of duty and returning home once again, their families exhale thankfully trusting the worst is over as their loved ones are safe on home soil once again. However, studies have demonstrated that when a soldier returns home, reintegration into society is not as simple and easy as many people might imagine. To give you an illustration, today I'd like to start us off by listening to a story of a young man who served in the Iraqi war. Alex was a 23 year old known by friends and family to be a joyful, loving, and adventurous young man. He'd always been raised with values of loyalty and duty to his nation and respect for those who protect the homeland. A legacy of military service ran in his blood. Both his father and his grandfather had proudly served in the army. So when need arose a few years later, Alex joined the U.S. Armed Forces without hesitation and with great anticipation. When he was called to serve in Iraq, his family proudly waved goodbye to him, choosing to believe that they would see him again soon. But little did they realize that years later he would come home, but after his return he would no longer be the person they had known. He would in effect become unrecognizable to his family and sadly, Alex would never be the same again. He cried inconsolably at night, he would hide under chairs and tables when he would hear an unfamiliar noise, and he'd refuse to leave the house. One day, when his family was at work, he took a handgun, walked in nearby abandoned lot, held the gun to his head, and pulled the trigger. That day, another life was lost. As you can see, For many veterans, reintegration into civilian life is not an easy task. In fact, it's so difficult that some are driven to suicide in the process. Now why is this? What is it about veterans that place them at higher risk for suicide? Let's take a look. According to recent estimates, an average of 22 veterans commit suicide every day. Some of you may have heard news reports that have discussed suicide rates in the veteran population. Many have reported that in 2012 alone, more service members died from suicide than in combat. And specifically in 2012, in Afghanistan alone, 349 US soldiers committed suicide compared to the 295 total number of combat fatalities in Afghanistan. This is truly an alarming statistic. In 2012, suicidality also increased 15% compared to 2011. Now, these trends in suicidality demonstrate that the subject of military suicide deserves urgent attention. At this point, you may be wondering, why is this relevant to me as a primary care provider? Well, I'd like to make the case that primary care providers may be in a strategic position to decrease suicide rates within the veteran population. How is this possible? Well, primary care providers are in a key position to assess for suicide risk. 45% of those who completed suicide have seen their civilian primary care providers in the month preceding their death. And 67% of those who attempt suicide receive medical attention as a result. Now these numbers are important and are worth remembering, so I'll repeat them. 45% of those who completed suicide have seen their primary care providers in the month preceding their death, and 67% have received medical attention as a result of a prior suicide attempt. In view of these statistics, primary care providers may be able to play an integral role in suicide prevention because they're in a key position to connect suicidal patients with appropriate follow-up specialty care when needed. Now, I'm curious, from your experience in healthcare, have you found that suicide screening is commonly used in your primary care setting? If you are with the majority, your answer was no. Studies have shown that suicide screening is underutilized in primary care settings. For example, one relevant study found that only 36% of those patients seeking antidepressants were actually screened for suicide by their primary care providers. Now later I'll touch on possible explanations on why this may be, but first I'd like to move our focus back towards the veteran population itself and those characteristics that place them at risk for suicide. We won't have time here to discuss every identified risk factor for this population, but we'll go over some of the main ones, including male gender, age, ethnicity, mental health diagnoses, duration of time exposed to combat, access to mental health services, pain, and a concept called moral injury. In the following minutes, we'll discuss these concepts individually in more detail. Let's begin with looking at gender as a risk factor. Who do you think is at higher risk for suicide, males or females? Well, if you answered males, you are correct. In the general population, suicide among males is four times higher than among females. They account for about 79% of all suicides in the U.S. Among the veteran population, the numbers are even higher. 97% of suicides were committed by males. Now, of course, when looking at this number, it's important to keep in mind that the vast majority or actually around 93% of those serving in the military happen to be males. In comparison to females, males have been found to be more likely to bring suicide to successful completion, and the majority do so by firearms talk briefly about women in the military. How do they compare to males when looking at suicide risk? Well, three percent of suicides in the veteran population occur by women, and the majority do so by the method of poisoning. Interestingly, although males are more likely to bring suicide to completion, females were found to be more likely to have suicidal thoughts. I'd like to take a moment to look at the clinical presentation that a suicidal female veteran may present with. Now this is a story that was written by Julia Savakul and it was published on today.com on May 25th, 2012. I'd like to take some time to read to you excerpts of that story now. Eddie Bailey was shocked when her doorbell rang at 6 a.m. on Saturday, and the somber faces of uniformed soldiers greeted her. She recognized the macabre scene played out in countless movies, but how could this be happening? Her foster daughter, Galena, was home from war, safe, and hunkered down at her military base in Hawaii. Then one of the men spoke. Galena was dead, he told her, but she hadn't left yet for her second tour abroad. She shot herself in the head, Eddie says now, the words even and detached. It's been a little more than a year since Private Galena Quipple committed suicide just two months shy of her 25th birthday. For Eddie, at home in Eagle River, Alaska, every day is a futile exercise in trying to understand what went so horribly wrong for a daughter who had treasured life and loved the military. Around the holidays, Galena visited her family in Alaska. Eddie sensed she was troubled. She didn't want to talk about anything to do with her mission, she remembers. She seemed withdrawn. Though Galena was clearly changed by her deployment in Afghanistan, nobody realized she was suicidal. Were there missed signs, indications she was slipping? She called me that morning to check on me. I had strep throat, says Linda, choking back tears. I had no idea that she was really calling to say goodbye. Now, this tragic story illustrates that suicidality is not gender specific. It can affect our friends, sisters, mothers, and daughters. One has to wonder if the outcome may have been different if signs of suicide would not have been missed. Let's move on to examine other risk factors. Let's look at age. So just as gender is a risk factor for suicide, so it is with age. When I ask people what ages they believe are at highest risk for suicide among veterans, usually people think it's the younger ages, those in their 20s or 30s. And actually, according to many studies, they're wrong. 69% of veterans suicides were completed by those aged 50 years and older. This is compared to only 37% in the civilian population. Now, depending on which study you look at, these numbers may vary slightly, but on average, we see that the ages are higher than what many would initially assume. In fact, it was found that from 2001 to 2005, the highest number of veteran suicides among Veteran Health Administration users were among 50 to 59-year-olds. Those veterans between the ages of 20 to 29 years showed the fewest suicides. It's not important to memorize the exact statistics on these age groups. What is important to remember is that those over the age of 50 may be at increased risk for suicide. Now these numbers are different from what you'll see for the general population and they're also different from what you'll see for suicide rates where active duty service members are taken into account. And I also want to add that although most large-scale studies are showing the information I just presented to you, I want you to be aware that there are a few studies which show that younger age groups may be at higher risk. Now the differences in this data may be attributable to methodological differences, study inclusion criteria, and so forth. Now let's move on to take a look at how ethnicity influences suicide rates. Those veterans at highest risk for successfully completing a suicide are non-Hispanic Whites. Approximately 91% of veteran suicides were by non-Hispanic Whites, and this is compared to the 87% of civilians. On the other hand, those at lower risk are African American veterans, as well as Indian Native Alaskan, Asian Pacific Islander, and Hispanics. Again, these numbers are different from what you'll see in the general population. Now, let's take a look at mental health and how it influences suicidality. This is a big one and perhaps the one that we focus on the most in primary care settings. Diagnoses. More than half of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. This is compared to a little more than one quarter of the general population. As many of you may already know, psychiatric diagnoses are associated with an increased risk of suicide in veterans. Not surprisingly, the duration of time exposed to combat has turned out to be a strong predictor for the severity of mental health problems veterans face. Several mental health diagnoses and conditions are considered to be risk factors for suicide. These include bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, deliberate self-harm. Now this is not an all-inclusive list. There are many other relevant mental health diagnoses, as an example, substance abuse that warrant exploration. However, due to time constraints, we'll not be discussing those here. Let's talk briefly about a particularly important condition, bipolar disorder. I wanted to remind you that this is a mental health disorder which is characterized by unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, as well as changes in ability to carry out activities of daily living. Patients with bipolar disorder experience serious and extreme shifts along the continuum of mood, ranging from depressed mood episodes to manic, hypomanic, or even mixed episodes. In a diagnosis-specific analysis, Veteran male patients with bipolar disorder showed the greatest risk of suicide. Bipolar disorder was diagnosed in 9% of all suicides among veterans receiving healthcare services at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Now let's take a look at post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. This is perhaps the diagnosis most people think of first when talking about veterans and for good reason. Among veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan wars, about one in five were diagnosed with PTSD. Now PTSD is an anxiety disorder that can develop after experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event. Symptoms of the disorder can include flashbacks, nightmares, frightening thoughts, feelings of guilt, loss of interest in activities that were previously found to be enjoyable. This is something called psychic numbing and avoidance of stimuli, which are reminders of the trauma. Some find themselves being easily startled or feeling on, on edge, experiencing angry outbursts, and having difficulty sleeping. It's been found that those with PTSD have four times higher risk in suicidal ideation compared to those without. Now, together with depression among returning service members, PTSD costs the United States approximately $6.2 billion during the first two years following deployment. This cost is accounted for by direct medical care costs, lost productivity, as well as suicide. So we see that the consequences of mental health diagnoses can extend far beyond just the patient and their families, but can even impact entire societies. In our society, perhaps no diagnosis has been more associated with suicide than depression. Among veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan wars, 17.4% were diagnosed with depression. Now depression, as a reminder, is a mood disorder characterized by symptoms which can include hyposomnia or hypersomnia, loss of interest or pleasure in activities previously enjoyed, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, decreased energy, impaired concentration, changes in appetite, psychomotor retardation, suicidal ideation. Second to bipolar disorder, veterans with depression were more likely to commit suicide than those with other mental health disorders. Those diagnoses that demonstrate the next greatest risk for suicide are anxiety disorders, and we already talked about one of those, that would include PTSD. Next would be substance abuse and schizophrenia. What is most troubling in this context is that only half of those diagnosed seek treatment, and of those who do seek help, only half receive care that is actually considered minimally adequate for their diagnosis. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about deliberate self-harm. Those patients with a history of deliberate self harm or DSH show an increased suicide risk. DSH is understood to be deliberate acts to harm self, resulting in a non fatal outcome. 3 to 5 percent of those with DSH will die by suicide within 5 to 10 years. Identifying DSH is relevant to the primary care practitioner because approximately two thirds of patients who commit DSH visit their primary care provider within 12 weeks of the episode. Again, when we look at this number, we can recognize the potential strategic position you as a primary care provider can fill to refer patients for follow-up care. Let's talk about the concept of moral injury as another risk factor for suicide. This is an area of research still in its infancy, but is compelling enough that I wanted to mention it here. Moral injury is perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. When soldiers are confronted with ethical and moral challenges and deeply held principles and beliefs are transgressed as a result, serious inner conflict now termed moral injury can result. War zone-related events that have been shown to contribute to moral injury include things like betrayal, such as disloyalty by peers, failure of leadership or failure to live up to one's own moral standards. Disproportionate violence would be another one. Examples of that would be like acts of revenge or mistreatment of combatants. Incidents involving civilians. Uh, An example of that would be assault or destruction of civilian property. And lastly, another example would be within rank violence such as military sexual trauma. The association between moral injury-related guilt and suicide are still being researched. However, several studies are beginning to show a strong association between the guilt of moral injury and suicide. One such study found that combat guilt was the most significant predictor of preoccupation with suicide as well as completed suicide. Now pain is another risk factor I'd like to share with you today. Veterans with pain-related diagnoses were more likely to commit suicide compared to non-veterans with pain-related diagnoses. Specifically, significantly increased suicidality was noted in veteran patients with head pain or musculoskeletal pain. So this highlights the importance of identifying veterans with pain in your clinical setting. Having discussed several of the most important risk factors, it's now time to consider briefly the challenges and barriers to mental health access for veterans. Veterans face unique challenges in accessing mental health services. Various factors have shown to influence this access. Um, there are many factors and we'll not have time to discuss them all. However, stigma and location are in two important ones that I would like to briefly cover with you today. Let's start with stigma. So the issue of stigma within the military would warrant a lecture on its own because of its complexity. And although we won't be diving into all of the aspects of stigma, one must remember that stigma within the military can greatly influence whether a soldier seeks care or not. Among veterans of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and Operation Iraqi Freedom, negative beliefs about mental health care and psychotherapy in particular were shown to increase stigma and were found to be a barrier in accessing care. Those veterans who perceived that they had less support from their unit experienced greater stigma. Also, negative beliefs about mental health care were associated with decreased psychotherapy visits and decreased medication visits. Also, those who screened positive for a psychiatric disorder were more likely to experience stigma. Let's talk briefly about location and how that may influence suicidality. Those of you who reside in rural settings will likely understand the unique challenges that are associated with living in such a setting. For veterans, the fact that they live in a rural area can influence the care they receive as well as their likelihood for suicide. Upon returning from active duty, Veterans with PTSD often have been found to settle in remote or rural settings in order to increase self-isolation and also to avoid triggers of PTSD symptoms. However, settling in remote regions frequently decreases their access to mental health care. Consequently, their mental health outcomes may be adversely affected. Although the prevalence of mental health disorders are found to be similar in rural and urban areas, Individuals in rural regions seek mental health services less frequently compared to those in urban populations. Veterans residing in rural areas were shown to have increased suicide rates when compared to urban regions. In fact, suicide risk within this population was shown to be 20 to 22% higher than in urban areas. That is quite significant. Several factors are considered barriers to accessing mental health care in rural areas compared to urban. Now, these can include fewer mental health providers, minimal patient accessibility to the providers, and fewer hospitals offering mental health services. Among 1,253 surveyed rural communities with populations ranging from 2,500 to about 20,000 about three-fourths of these counties lacked a psychiatrist. Also, only one-half were found to have a doctorally prepared psychologist or social worker within an accessible distance. So why is it harder for rural patients to access mental health care? Well, other than what I just mentioned to you, additional barriers can include lack of public transportation, longer driving distances. Challenging roads and environmental factors like extreme weather and mountain passes, lack of anonymity and social stigma in rural communities is also thought to be another barrier in accessing mental health services. There are many other factors which influence health care seeking and availability to rural residents, but we'll not be discussing it in more detail here. Relevant to primary care providers in rural areas, as you can see, mental health providers are often very scarce. So, your role as a primary care provider to assess for suicide risk becomes all the more important. You may be the only person assessing this patient for suicide. Now, up until this point, we've explored why the topic of suicide in the veteran population is relevant to primary care providers. We looked at risk factors for suicide in the veteran population, and we've also looked at challenges to accessing care. Now I'd like to take just a few brief moments to explore some other ways to understand suicide. We'll take a quick look at two theories, the biopsychosocial perspective, and also the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, IPTS. These can help clinicians to better understand the factors that can lead a a patient to suicide. Now the details of these theories are absolutely not something you have to remember. They're only meant to demonstrate to you different ways in which theorists attempt to uncover the motivations and causes of suicide. First, let's just take a few brief moments to explore suicide through the lens of the biopsychosocial perspective. Research is finding that a complex relationship exists between genetic factors, personality dimensions, and protective or deteriorating influences of the social environment. From the biopsychosocial perspective, stressful environmental exposures play a vital role in suicide risk. During stages of human development, genetic predispositions interact with stressful life events and produce maladaptive or adaptive, emotional, cognitive, and behavioral responses. As we think about war and the stories recounted by veterans, maybe you've even heard a few, it's quite easy to see how they may encounter events that are stressful and that may interact with their genetic predispositions to contribute to suicide risk. Let's switch now and talk about interpersonal, psychological theory of suicide or IPTS. So IPTS identifies the three necessary factors for successful suicide completion. According to this theory, these factors are, number one, feeling that one does not belong with people. Number two, feeling that one is a burden to society and people. And number three, a capability to overcome the fear associated with suicide. These are all factors necessary for suicide completion. These factors are of interest not only in recognizing those who wish to die by suicide, but more importantly, those who are most likely to complete the suicide attempt. This is an important consideration because while 5% of the general U.S. population considers suicide seriously at some point in their lives, only 1.4% of the population actually completes the act. So clearly, there appear to be certain factors that keep suicidal people from actually committing suicide. IPTS hypothesizes the cause for the comparatively low completed suicide rate is due to insufficiently high levels of the three factors I just talked to you about. So why are levels of suicide higher in certain veteran age groups as compared to civilian population? Well, IPTS suggests that the key may lie in the third necessary factor, which I'll remind you, it's the capability to overcome the fear associated with suicide. This theory proposes that to acquire the capability for self-injury, one must develop it over time through repeated exposure to painful events. The military training to kill enemies involves overcoming significant fears, hardships, and reservations associated with doing so. A similar habituation process may be responsible for overcoming fear necessary for lethal self-injury. Through desensitization, fear and pain become less aversive and more tolerable. So IPTS suggests that of the three components necessary for completed suicide, acquired capability is the key factor in understanding increased suicide rates in the military. So now that we have a greater understanding of contributing factors to suicide, you may be wondering, how do we apply this knowledge clinically? Well, as you may already know, in the clinical setting, suicidal ideation is viewed on a continuum, ranging from suicidal ideation without a plan to suicidal ideation with a plan for suicide completion, which is the most severe end of the spectrum. As a refresher, Suicidal ideation is when a patient is thinking about, considering, or planning for suicide. Suicidal ideation has identifiable symptoms. A few examples I'll present to you now They include pill-seeking behaviors, talking or writing about death or suicide, hopelessness, rage, uncontrolled behaviors, increased risk-seeking behaviors, revenge, feeling trapped, and saying or feeling that there's no reason, reason for living. Additional ones may be withdrawing, giving away belongings, panic attacks, insomnia, anhedonia, or severe anxiety. There are many other symptoms you may encounter as well in the clinical setting, but these were just a few examples. One of the most important take-home messages here is that suicidal ideation is a strong predictor of suicidal behavior. And most of those that attempt suicide report a history of suicidal ideation. Let's think back on the statistics we've learned about thus far regarding primary care provider contact with suicidal patients. 45% of those who completed suicide have seen their primary care providers in the month preceding their death. 67% of those who attempt suicide receive medical attention as a result. I would like to make the case that because suicidality has identifiable risk factors as well as signs of impending suicide, primary care providers may save veteran lives when they assess patients for suicidality and and follow up on those findings by referring patients for appropriate care. You as a primary care provider are potentially in a position where you can save the life of a veteran. So this brings us now to the subject of suicide screening. Perhaps some of you may have heard the recent US Preventive Services Task Force statement regarding suicide screening in primary care. They stated that in the primary care setting, they are neither for nor are they against universal screening in the general population. This is a result of insufficient evidence regarding suicide screening effectiveness in reducing mortality and detecting suicidality. However, this same report also stresses that screening can be applied to high-risk populations, such as those with psychiatric illnesses. In view of veteran risk factors for suicide that we've discussed so far, as well as high rates of diagnosable mental illness within the veteran population, it stands to reason that the veteran population should qualify as a high-risk group for suicide. Therefore, I make the case to you today that it would be appropriate to view the veteran population as appropriate candidates for suicide screening within the primary care setting. How many of you have encountered clinicians who are fearful of assessing patients for suicide for fear of giving them ideas about suicide or encouraging their suicidal thoughts? You may even be one of them. If you are, you can rest easy. Suicide screening is believed not to increase suicidal ideation. However, at its best, it can save lives. So how do we screen patients for suicide? There are many suicide screening tools available and perhaps your practice setting prefers to use one over another. Here, I'll be presenting you with just a few common screening tools and I'll briefly review their use just to introduce you to them. But before we do that, I'd like you to always keep in mind that any suicide screening tool is only as good as a patient's report. It can't be a foolproof method because a patient could always choose not to disclose suicidal ideation, even if it's there. So as clinicians, we must create an environment that will maximize the chance of patient self-disclosure to us. And things that we could take into consideration would be Ensuring a safe environment where the patient feels comfortable to self-disclose, for example. Often for this to happen, a therapeutic rapport where the patient trusts the clinician must be developed. Another important consideration is that even a positive suicide screen will only have a chance to be effective to save a life if the patient is then referred for appropriate follow-up care. And appropriate follow-up care, um, can you'll have to assess that for every unique case and will depend on the severity of patient symptoms and it will also depend on their support systems that they have in place it can vary from being hospitalized to being monitored at home by friends or family and and like i said before it has to be determined when considering each patient's unique case but in any case the process of screening and referral will run smoother if the clinician already knows what systems are in place at their practice setting for referral and follow-up. Now follow-up care is a step whose importance cannot be overemphasized enough in connection with a positive suicide screen because without it, the suicide screen will likely not affect patient outcomes. The next thing that I just want to briefly touch on is that the topic of suicide screening effectiveness and limitations is a complex topic. It's an area where ongoing research is needed and is also underway. All the factors that play into screening cannot be discussed here because of time constraints, but at any rate, it's clear that despite some controversy around screening, Um, At this time, suicide screening is one of the best ways to assess for suicidal ideation, although it's not without its limitations, and we've discussed some of those limitations here today. Now let's move on to consider some of the screening tools that are in use today. This is not an exhaustive list, but I've chosen some of the most common ones to discuss with you. All of these suicide screening tools have specific ways in which they need to be administered and also scored. I'll review the highlights with you here today for the tools I'll present to you, but please make sure that before you actually begin to use them in in your practice setting, that you thoroughly familiarize yourself with their recommended use. The first scale I'd like to talk to you about today is called the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale or CSSR. This rating scale was developed by leading experts in the field. It's evidence-based, and an added benefit is that it requires only a short time to administer with an average of just a few minutes. The screening tool uses a simple one through five rating for suicidal ideation, and information about the patient is obtained from a semi-structured interview format. In the end, utilizing the scoring specified on the CSSR rating scale, You'll end up with a score which will help to inform you of the suicide risk for this patient. Of course, as with all suicide screening tools, they never replace your clinical judgment. They're meant to assist you in assessing your patient. Another tool I'd like to talk to you about is called SAFE-T, which stands for Suicide Assessment, Five-Step, Evaluation, and Triage. The steps of this tool were based upon the American Psychiatric Association practice guidelines for the assessment and treatment of patients with suicidal behaviors. As the name implies, this is a a triage tool, essentially. And I said before, it has five steps. The first step is identification of risk factors. And in this step, we take note of modifiable risk factors in order to reduce risk. The second step is to identify protective factors. And here we note those protective factors, which can be enhanced. And then the third step is to conduct a suicide inquiry by assessing for suicidal thoughts, plans, and behaviors, as well as intent. Step number four is to determine risk level and appropriate intervention for that risk level. And then the final step five is documentation of assessment of risk, rationale for your intervention, and also follow-up. The last example of a suicide screening tool that I'll share with you today is called the Suicide Behaviors Questionnaire and I'll present to you the revised version, so it's also known as the SBQR. This is a four-item assessment and each item on the assessment looks at different dimensions of suicidality. Item one looks at lifetime suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. Item two, assesses the frequency of suicidal ideation over the last year. Item three, looks at the threat of suicide attempt. And item four, evaluates self-reported likelihood of suicidal behavior in the future. The, like most suicide screening tools, the SPQR comes with directions on how to score the patient answers to the questions on the assessment. The score then, again, can assist you in your clinical decision-making regarding this patient. So, I've presented to you today only a few examples of suicide screening tools which can help you guide your your decision making when assessing a patient for suicidal ideation. As I mentioned before, there are many other tools out there that you may choose to use instead of the ones I showed to you today. The important thing to remember on those days when you feel really overwhelmed with, with patients and you have a lot of people coming through the door and when it may be tempting not to perform a suicide screening for high-risk patient, such as a veteran, it is your suicide assessment that may end up saving a life. We'll end today by listening to one final case study. This one ends on a happier note than the others I've shared with you. You'll notice that in this story, a primary care provider has appropriately intervened in the life of a suicidal veteran and ended up saving his life. Peter is a 36-year-old veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Ever since coming back from his tour of duty, his family has noticed him slowly withdrawing. While he used to be outgoing and adventurous, these days he shut himself into the home, refusing to see any of his family or friends. Unbeknownst to his family, in the silence of his room, Peter began to feel hopelessness and despair and had started to plan for suicide. His intention was to wait until his family left the house to remove his gun from the lockbox and to shoot himself. A week prior, he had fallen and injured his arm and it appeared not to be healing well. So at his family's prompting, they encouraged him to see a primary care provider. Dr. Lee had an opening that next, day. Peter felt at ease with Dr. Lee because he took time to listen empathetically to him. Knowing that Peter may be at risk for suicide, the doctor asked Peter about suicidal ideation. Because Peter felt safe with Dr. Lee, he disclosed for the first time with honesty his struggles since returning from active duty and he also told the doctor about his thoughts of suicide. Dr. Lee immediately referred him for follow-up care and Peter was placed in the hospital where intensive treatment was started. A year later, Peter still struggles, but today he has hope. He no longer has the intent of committing suicide. Through the intervention of his primary care provider, a life was saved. So today we have reviewed quite a bit of information. We looked at suicide risk factors within the veteran population. We examined why the topic of suicidality in the veteran population is relevant to you as primary care providers. And we've also considered the challenges that veterans face when accessing mental health care. Finally, we examined the importance of suicide screening in high-risk populations like the veteran population and shared with you a few examples of suicide screening tools and how to administer them. I do hope you found this information to be useful, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to learn about this important topic. In closing, I wish to once more urge you to please remember that as primary care providers with appropriate and timely intervention, you may be able to save the life of a veteran. There is also a complete reference list list available for all of the data I presented to you today. Please feel free to request this if you are interested in seeing those references. Thank you.